Songs like that make me want to just put it on a loop, just play it all day long to keep remembering who Jesus is and how it really changes everything for us. If you are, we're all part of a family, we know that um, where God put us in our family profoundly affects uh, the kinds of experiences we have in life, uh, some of our greatest joys and some of our greatest difficulties come through that closeness that we find in a regular family, and we're grateful for our moms, um, the sacrifices they make, uh, the significance they've had in our lives. And, you know, we, we know that reality is that just like dads, not every dad's a great dad, not every mom's a great mom, but um, we do have, as believers, a heavenly father who's the perfect father. We have a, a heavenly family, a spiritual family, a forever family um, that one day will be absolutely perfect. We have our difficulties like any family does. The physical birth is, is important, but the spiritual birth is far more important. You remember that Jesus said that those that are born of flesh, what's born of flesh is flesh. Those that are born of spirit is spirit. Except you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to talk about today, being born of God. At the end of chapter 4, John talked about God's gift of the Spirit, the, the person of the Trinity through whom he grants life to us. He indwells us and, and transforms us. And John, as he's worked through this epistle, keeps taking up themes that he's introduced earlier, um, and he weaves them together, he keeps weaving them together. In fact, as I studied this week, I told the guys it reminded me of watching someone braiding something or, or weaving something. Um, and just tightening it down and continually bringing these uh, together. In fact, um, as we talked, uh, Ben Fedroff brought up that in J.D. Crowley's uh, book, and sorry, J.D., that you're here, so I talk about you uh, in a way that could be embarrassing, but the reality is that uh, he's written a commentary on First John and seeking to oppose the false religions there in Asia. Um, very helpful. Um, exegesis of first, second, and third John, but true religion and counterfeit religion. And he actually illustrates how interwoven these truths are uh, with the diagrams that he has through the book. And born of God is in the middle, and then it's connected to uh, being holy, to believing truth, to loving God and loving others. Um, we now have actually 20 copies, hardback versions of that, um, well, softbound versions. Um, helpful commentary that's available in our bookstore. So the first 20 of you uh, that can get to it um, can get those, and then uh, I'm sure that we'll be replenishing those, but we are, we are grateful for that work. The test of whether someone is a false teacher or a genuine child of God, all root themselves in God's having given us life through Him. We call that regeneration. We call it being born again. And here it's called born of God. 
So we see those words appear multiple times in our passage this morning, underline them, and then we will develop the message from these verses along that theme. So in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you go back to that first verse, you see the phrase, born of God. Sometimes that's translated in a, an older term, uh, begotten of God, begotten of God. And actually, the term is used again in a different form in reference to the Father. It literally is the one begetting, rather than the normal word for Father, the one begetting. And then uh, later in the passage, we're going to see children, a different vocabulary, one we've seen before, to emphasize our being born ones of God. So, we've entitled the message, Born of God, and these three truths emerge from these five verses. Those born of God believe Jesus is the Messiah. Those born of God are loved by those who love the Father. And those born of God overcome the world. So follow with me as we work through this passage, first looking at the first great truth that those born of God believe Jesus is the Messiah. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. If you have God's life in you, you will trust in Jesus for who He really is. Jesus, the historical Jesus that walked the planet, is the one that was revealed through predictions of God's prophets and by eyewitness testimony of His apostles. Everyone who's received life from God believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, it's because you don't have life from God. So, what does John mean when he says Jesus is the Christ? Those terms are so familiar to us. Uh, we use Jesus Christ as if Jesus is His first name and Christ is His last name. Jesus Christ is very familiar to us. Well, let's remind ourselves that Jesus' name given to Him through the angel to His parent, to, to Mary and to Joseph, His adopted father, his name means Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves. And the angel explained that you are to call this child born of Mary, Yahweh saves, for he, this child, would save his people from their sins. His very name testifies to his deity and testifies to his mission as Savior of the world. He is the God-man Savior. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua. 
So it's a common name, but to be applied to him for the reason that it was applied to him identifies him as the unique God-man Savior. The term Christ is the Greek version, Christos, of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's not so much a name as a title, and it's a title with a long history full of promise. The Messiah means the anointed one. We talk about a christening. Why? Because we're anointing the child, okay? So, Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, whom God has promised throughout all those centuries of Old Testament prophecies. The offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. The descendant of Judah, to whom the scepter belongs. The son of David, who would rule an everlasting kingdom. The son of Yahweh, Psalm 2, crowned king of the universe by Yahweh himself, before whom all kingdoms would fall, and over all kingdoms he will rule. He will crush all earthly powers and set up an eternal kingdom along with his saints, according to the book of Daniel. He is, according to Isaiah, the suffering servant of Yahweh, who would bear our iniquities and die for them in our place, and yet would rise to see his progeny, would rise to see those who would benefit from his sacrifice, and thus he is introduced by John the Baptist in the Gospels as the Lamb of God, pointing to all those Old Testament sacrifices who would take away the sin of the world. So, when we say Jesus is the Messiah, we're saying this historical person named Jesus, named so because He would save His people from their sins, the God-man Savior, is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, the one who would be the Savior King that the whole world needed if they were to be rescued from sin and death. So, to believe Jesus is the Messiah is to believe God's promises of deliverance from sin and death through the God-man, Savior, King. And this is the doctrinal test, the truth test of whether someone is born of God or not. Anyone who denies that Jesus is this promised one does not have life from God. No matter how many degrees, no matter how, how smart he may seem, no matter what his mystical experience is, he does not have life from God. But those who do believe this, who are relying on Jesus as the Christ, do have life. So, I think, you know, just as the songs that we've sung today, and particularly the one that the, the choir just sang, it… it it illustrates for us how important it is for us to take seriously the promises of God regarding the Messiah, Jesus. And so, let's, let's begin with that question, is how seriously do you actually take that promise? I mean, everything hangs on whether this is true or not. If Jesus is not the Savior from sin, then He can't be the deliverer from death. If Jesus is not the promised Messiah, then who is? Who will save us? Who will rescue us? But if Jesus is what God promised He would be and what the apostles testified that He demonstrated Himself to be, then that has really 
infinite impact on your life and mine if we will indeed trust Him. What He came to do and what He will yet do changes the very history of the world and changes the destiny of your soul. You must believe. If you hold to these promises, if you hold that they're reliable, that Jesus is in fact the Savior King, it is because you have life that has been given to you by God. And with that life comes power and strength and hope and love so that you can live the life that God has given you to live. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. He, he taught that, that you had to be born again if you would be part of this kingdom. Peter talks about our being born again by incorruptible seed, that is divine seed, seed from God, offspring of God, through the living and abiding Word of God. In other words, that Word is forever. It will always be reliable. Go out a billion years from now, and it's still going to be true. And God's going to fulfill every detail of it. And Peter says, this is the gospel. This is a good news preached to you. See, good news isn't good news if it's not actually true. Good news isn't good news if you put your weight on it and it collapses under you. But this good news lives and abides forever. Its impact is eternal. And God gives life to those who have come to believe it. Secondly, those born of God are loved by those who love the Father. Second part of verse 1, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, Father, I already mentioned before, is literally the one begetting, and born of Him is begotten of Him. It's an emphasis on family genetics. In fact, we get the word genetics from this word. You know, what are your genes? Okay? If we truly love God who gives life to His born ones, we love His born ones too. There is a spiritual, genetic relationship between the two. You can't love one and hate the other. You can't separate love for God from love for His born again children. No one truly loves God who does not also love God's born ones. Now, John has said this multiple times in multiple ways, and here he's getting right at the fact that, that, that our spiritual DNA, our spiritual genetic makeup is coming from God Himself. And how I respond to people that have been born again illustrates whether I actually love the God who is their Father. Now, you look through a congregation, you get to know a congregation like ours, you will find all kinds of flaws and warts. There are difficulties. It's just like the members of your own family. You expand that, you've got even more problems to deal with. And if you focus on all the idiosyncrasies, if you focus on, 
on all the flaws and the failures, you will miss the most significant thing about us, and that is that we have been born of God. And because of that, not only made in God's image as a, as a human being, this is why there's dignity to every human being, but, but also born again through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and therefore, I'm, I'm looking at family members of God. I'm looking at people who have a growing resemblance to the God who created them. And for me to harbor hatred, anger, resentment, for me to engage in slander, the kinds of things that we would associate with hatred is, is just not consistent at all with who these people are. So let me encourage you, when you, you do run into difficulty, and, and you will because of our flesh, because our human beings are flawed, where the transformation is not complete, that you remind yourself who these people actually are that you're interacting with. Whether you're interacting with them in person or on Twitter or through a letter or over the phone or ho- however, however you're doing your interaction, however you're thinking about the, these people, think about them first in terms of who their spiritual family actually is. Now, verse 2, well, I skipped, sorry. I'll go back. This world has an inborn hatred for born-again Christians. People may talk of love and even go so far as to say they love God, but if they don't love true believers, they don't really love God either. So one of, one of the acid tests of whether you're still part of the world or not is your attitude toward other believers. People that hate God's people are still clearly part of the world in rebellion against God. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, when I read that verse, it actually started to, it was almost confusing, because I expect John to say, we know we love God and keep His commandments when we love the children of God. But he turns it around and says it the other way. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. So, what he's answering is this question, how do I know I'm really showing love to the children of God. You know how you have people say, I love you, but there's nothing about the way they talk or the way they act toward you that would indicate that they actually love you? you you've, you've encountered people, or maybe they say they love people, but evidently they don't think you're a person because they clearly don't care much for you, okay? So how do I know I'm really showing love to the children of God? Well, the text says I show them love by loving God and keeping His commandments. You say, wait a minute, come again? Now, how, how, is, how does that demonstrate that I actually love the children of God? Well, think about it. It is not loving toward the children of God to hate their Heavenly Father. He loves them and has given in them life. And they love Him more than anything or anyone else in the world. When I love Him, then I will love 
those made in his image, and it shows in practical ways. They benefit from my love for God, and they're harmed by my lack of love for God. They, they suffer when I don't love God the way they ought to. My not loving God actually puts me out of sync with God and with the universe that he created, including all the people in it. So the first thing I have to deal with is my actual love for God. I can't actually love people until I do love God. And I can't love people in a way that contradicts my love for God. It's not actually showing love to them. So it's not, secondly, it's not loving to the children of God or to anyone else for that matter to disobey God's commandments because His commandments actually flesh out what love looks like in practical ways. It pulls it out of the poetry and, and out of the, the wishing I actually love people to actually doing it and demonstrating it. God's commandments are for our good and not our harm, and disobedience to God's commands is how we define sin. Sin inherently harms myself and harms those around me. Obedience conforms to righteousness, and righteousness is inherently good for others as well as for myself. Don't ever divorce don't, don't divorce the relationship between sin and harm and between righteousness and goodness, righteousness and help to other people. Furthermore, John demonstrates we can't separate love for God from obedience to God. God deserves my highest regard as the supremely beautiful and good being in the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the truth teller, the justice bringer, the love giver. This is God. To rebel against such a good God must first devalue and dishonor him for who he is. My, my failure to keep his commandments, my reluctance, my resistance to keeping his commandments is rooted in something deeper, and that is my regard for God or lack thereof. Romans 121 teaches us as it describes how the various nations became so corrupt. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, ungodliness, the failure to honor God, is the root of unrighteousness, the failure to obey God. So my sin problem is actually a worship problem. My disobedience problem is a love problem. Because when I love God, I keep my commandments, 
and that in turn does good toward other people. Now, Satan's tactic has always been, ever since the Garden of Eden, is to question what God has said, to question His commands, to create doubt about God Himself, and then, then to deny what God has said, making God a, a liar, and then to assign to God evil motives for what He's commanded. He tells Eve, He knows that you'll become like Him. In other words, God's trying to hold you back. Isn't this the lie that pervades our society? It says, look, God's not actually a, a good guy. He's a bully. He's trying to hold you back. He's too restrictive. Rather than, He's given me commandments for my good. He's given me commandments for life. He's given me commandments because of love, not because He is trying to hold me back. And Satan continues to use these same strategic lies to this day. Satan hates God, and he wants us to do the same. But the one who loves God actually wants to obey God. And look, we, we understand this, right? I mean, you're, you're married to the girl of your dreams, or the guy of your dreams, and turns out it's not Jekyll Hyde, he's, he's actually a, a good guy, she's a great gal, okay, when she would like you to do something or he would like you to do something, it's your pleasure. In fact, you would like to know what the person you love wants you to do. Sometimes you're not sure, but you'd like to know. When, when you want to show love to your kids or to a friend, you would love to know what they would like, okay? So God's commandments give us insight into what pleases him. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So, loving God and obeying God are inseparable, and keeping God's commands and guarding and, and treasuring them so that we can obey him it is what people who love him want to do. Remember when Jesus gave us the Great Commission, uh, and he talks about going and baptizing, and then he says, uh, as we make disciples of all nations, he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That This is God's method. His commandments are not burdensome. That is, they're, they're not too heavy to bear. Unlike the burdensome rules of the Pharisees that loaded people up so much, nobody could keep them, nobody could, could uh, dot every I and cross every T, nobody could be good enough. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. in contrast to that, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When the yoke fits... It doesn't rub you raw. A yoke was used to yoke up oxen so they can plow the field. The yoke fit well. You know, it's like a pair of shoes that fits well. Then they don't rub you raw. God's commandments fit who you are as one made in God's image. God's commandments are to guide you down a path of blessing that is suited to who you are and who He is and what the universe is like. This week, Ben Federoff, 
uh, shared with me some of his meditations on this statement that God's commands are not burdensome. And I, I thought it was a particularly powerful piece. I think he's going to end up posting it on our website soon or perhaps sending it to you in the Friday communication. Now, here's a summary of his 10 reasons God's commands are not burdensome, and I shared them with you for your own meditation. First, God's commands are in line with how he created the world. You know, you could choose to disobey God's commands, but it just puts you out of sync with the way the world works. Second, God's commands are for our good. Third, God's commands are simple. That is, um, unlike the complex religious systems where you've got to learn the code, you've got to learn the ceremony, um, God's commands are straightforward. They're simple. God's commands are not the means by which his approval is gained. We know that the, the law of God, the commands of God, reveal the sinners that we are and how badly we need Jesus. So part of their function is to drive us to the Savior. And then God enables what He commands. John's talked about this a lot. He does this through the Spirit. God commands us, not just me. In other words, following God is meant to be lived in community. God commands, and yet God also forgives when we fail those commands. God's commands are not his only word. He also gives promises. Um, he also enters relationship with us. Um, it's not all just imperatives, all commands. And then God's commands are worth singing about, and we do. And God's commands do not change. He's not a fickle God. He's someone you can rely on. As I thought through those, I was reminded um, of the way the Scriptures, the psalmist, describes uh, the Word of God in Psalm 19. I, I happened in my reading this morning in the Psalms, uh, came across these words, and it seemed like essentially saying what Ben was trying to get at. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, they conform to a standard of perfection. And then listen to the way the psalmist describes further, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, like here is riches for us. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb, essentially the ancient form of candy, chocolate. Um, the, best, the best you could eat, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there his great reward. No wonder God says that his commandments are not burdensome. So, going back to the main point of, of this, these verses here, how, how can I actually love my brothers and my sisters better? Well, start, start with loving God more. And with letting his word 
drive how you express your love to the people around you. And instead of just making it up as you go, let God's Word guide you infallibly down the path of, of how love ought to be shown. This is the kind of love that people need most. I want us just to take a moment and think about this. Husbands, what does God say to you about how you're supposed to love your wife? If you want her to be truly loved, then love her that way. Wives, how, how does God want you to show love to your husband? If you want him to feel your love for him, then love him the way the Scriptures direct you to love him. Fathers and mothers, how are, how are we to love our children instead of exasperating them or being harsh with them? How, how are we to love them in a way that's actually to their benefit? The Scriptures address this. Children, how are you to love your parents? The Scriptures are really clear about how you would show love to them, what would actually mean the most to them and do them the most good. How are you and I to love our neighbors? What does the Scripture say about that? How, what does the Scripture say about how we love our friends and who are my neighbors and who are my friends? Well, anybody in need. So that could be my classmate. It could be my next-door neighbor. It could be the person I meet in the grocery store. But God has a directives as to how I'm supposed to interact with them. And He has directives about how I'm not supposed to interact with them if I truly want to show them love. Third in our text, those born of God overcome the world. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Notice it starts with the four, so it's explaining that this overcoming of the world is related to this obedience to God. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. So, what does overcome the world mean? Well, remember what John has already had to say about the world in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, the world, the cosmos, where do you get cosmetics from? The world is the organized system in rebellion against God. People like to talk about the system. Well, this is the system. This, this is actually the system that is most dangerous. We see at every level of our society and of our world. We see it in entertainment, news, media, education, government, public policy, uh, we see it right down working its way into our families. Psalm 2 talks about the kings of the earth and the rulers have set themselves against the Lord and against His Messiah. And every one of us as a human being feels the pull of the world on our minds and hearts. So how can we possibly overcome it, conquer it, when our very nature as human beings is actually to sin against God, to rebel against God ourselves. How is that even possible? 
And it's striking that the verb tense that John uses here points to a decisive event, not an ongoing process. He's not saying we are overcoming the world. He says we have overcome. There's a point in time where, where the victory is actually won. Well, if we are born again, we, are chill. we were once children of darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. Our nature was to disobey, but when we receive life from God through His Spirit, our disposition changed. Our heart is now to obey Him rather than to obey our old sinful desires. And we can obey through the power of God at work in us. His life is in us. Luther said it this way, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ, Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of armies, is His name from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. It's that connection to Jesus that brings the victory. John 15, 18 to 19, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then later he says in John 16, 33, because he talks about tribulation, he talks about persecution, things that could be fearful to us. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I don't know if he would have said it this way, but today we'd say chill. Just don't fret. Don't freak out that the world's against you. The world's against me. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have pressure. You, you will have affliction. But take heart. Take courage. I have overcome the world. How do we overcome the world? Well, there's a sense in which we personally don't have the power to do that. Jesus has overcome the world, and it's the connection with Him that gives us the victory. 1 John 5, 5. This is exactly what Jesus says. Who is it, or what John says, who is it that overcomes the world, conquers the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The human being, Jesus, is God the Son come to earth as the promised Messiah. His mission was to rescue people, His saints, and, and make them part of His forever kingdom in contrast to the kingdoms of this world that are all passing away. Jesus has already won the victory at the cross and at the empty tomb. And if you are relying on him as your savior, that victory is yours. This victory to overcome the world requires divine power, God-sized power. So if you're connected to God, you win. If instead you bank on the world, you lose. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved 
son. That kingdom will never pass away. That's a victory beyond all other victories. It is possible only by the almighty power of God himself, and his life is in us. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors, overcomers, through him who loved us. It's done in Jesus. That's why if you're connected to Jesus, if you're trusting in him, the victory is already yours. It's yours. There's no need to fret. There's no need to fear. There's no need to cave in. There's no need to defect and join the enemies of God because they seem so strong. They will all be swept away with this passing world, this world in rebellion against God. It'll be like chaff before the wind. But his kingdom will never end, and he will reign forever. It's total victory. In him, we have overcome the world. Faith, love, obedience, all inseparable tests of being born of God. And the root of all three is this new birth. Do you have life? Do you have life? Because if you have life, this is true of you. If this is not true of you, you don't have life yet. And yet, Christ would call to you and say, come to me, that you might have life. He gives life. He, he raises people from the dead spiritually as well as physically. Those born of God believe Jesus is the Messiah. Those born of God are loved by those who love the Father. Those born of God overcome the world. What else could you want? What else could you want? Let's pray. God, I pray that this morning we would be honest with ourselves about where we really are in all this. Lord, thank you that the test of being born of God is not our own perfection. This is not about adding another ceremony. It's not about some kind of quick fix and some kind of formula. It's about Jesus. It's about whether we really are trusting in Him. It's about the effect of His life in us as it displays itself in practical love to the children of God. Lord, may we live today demonstrating the life that we have for God. Lord, our world is drowning in death. It's, it's like... It's like the, the cadence of the world is just one big, long dirge. Lost in darkness, lost in death, broiling with hatred. Lord, may we bring light and life and love. May we have compassion on those that still need Jesus. 
And God, we pray that you would grant them the life to see and to trust and to live. Be part of your kingdom forever. For it's in Christ's name we pray.